Episode 8, Pure Evil. What you're about to hear are a number of events that occurred during my time as a state police officer. Based on true and factual accounts, some details were changed due to operational security and confidentiality reasons, but not in a way to affect the veracity of this story. I struggled with the decision and twisted my hand on the butt of my firearm to obtain a better grip. Even though I was mentally elsewhere, I was very much aware my hand was tightly gripping the butt as it had been a deliberate and conscious action to place it there. I was giving serious, deadly serious thought about drawing it out. What the fuck are you looking at, he said, knowing that I had been staring at him. It took every single and absolute fibre in my body not to walk over to him and to do what I felt at that point in time needed to be done. I stood my ground. What am I looking at, I replied. A fucking oxygen thief, you piece of shit. Let me ask you, what do you hate about your job? I feel it goes without saying that nearly all of us would despise some aspect of their job, whether it's a big or a small issue. There's always one, or maybe even a couple, of certain aspects to our job that we don't like doing, and that's absolutely fine as it would be a very rare day that someone gets to be employed in their perfect job. I don't think there's too many out there who would doubt policing can be a tough job, and while I did manage to cope with most of the difficulties, there were two components I absolutely struggled with. None of them, and neither of them, would be what you're expecting. Being spat at, vomited on, having urine thrown at you, verbally, physically abused, are all horrible components to policing, but they weren't the things that I struggled with. Friends and family would say to me, they could never be a police officer because of the blood and the gut side of it, or that you have to attend and deal with collisions. But to me, neither of these were too much of a problem. Mind you, on a side note, I did find attending a fatal accident was easier than being at a scene where someone is trapped and they're screaming because they're hanging on to life. As a police officer, there's not a huge amount you can do until rescue teams and paramedics arrive. That was a tough one, as my instinctiveness and my training was for the sole purpose of helping others. So, the two things that I personally found difficult to deal with, and which got to me the most. The first one was having to deliver a death message. Now, before I continue, I would like to say that if this has occurred to you, and you feel it might reignite those memories and could be upsetting, please stop listening and move forward to somewhere further into the episode. I personally delivered nine death messages, and I remember every single one, nearly down to the exact words of the conversation and the responsive reaction. While it's not a part of policing that occurs too often, to me and some of my colleagues, it's a tough component, and it's very difficult to perform. As a recruit, we received one small half-hour lesson discussing and suggesting the method or what supportive techniques you could use when delivering such a message. So useless was that half-hour. The only thing I remember from it was the advice never to deliver a life-changing message anywhere near a kitchen, 
or somewhere where someone may inadvertently arm themselves. It had been on rare occasions when delivering such news as the unexpected death of a loved one, officers have been set upon. They've even been stabbed as recipients are known to unintentionally lash out after receiving such tragic and emotional news. The second part of performing my duties I found difficult was dealing with a certain category of person. Clearly, the profession exposes you to all walks of life, but the type of person I'm referring to can only be described by one word, evil. I looked up the definition of evil in the Oxford Dictionary, and when you refer it to a person, it's defined as someone who enjoys harming others and who is morally bad and cruel. The thing is, there were quite a number of occasions where I had to deal with this type of offender and I found it extremely difficult. These aren't the regular sort of people that police would deal with on a daily basis. These were at the extreme ends. Those that clearly had something terribly wrong with them, more than likely at a mental health level. Please understand I'm not referring to people that may have mental health concerns. I'm talking about individuals that have something so inexplicably wrong the crimes they commit against others were evil, pure evil. One event I dealt with was, let's say, a double whammy for me, and it's still very fresh in my mind. It was the delivery of a death message to two very evil people. I was called to a collision involving a pedestrian, and of all things a large truck on a high-speed major suburban road. Really not something anyone is keen to attend, particularly when I was informed the collision involved an elderly male who had been struck and run over by a large truck and trailer loaded with sand. He had been dragged underneath for 100 metres or so before being thrown around like a rag doll under the trailer and spat out the back. What remained of his body was a mess and he was clearly deceased as several limbs had detached and his internal organs were spread everywhere. Regardless of the method or potential obvious reason of his death, every occurrence of a death has to be properly investigated, and even if there is what appears to be an obvious conclusion or not. So as the lead investigator, I initially considered whether was this simply a case of misadventure, an elderly male who didn't see or hear the approaching truck as he crossed. They were the most obvious, likely impossible reasons, until I searched the body. I located what turned out to be a suicide note in the top pocket of the light brown tweed jacket he had been wearing. The letter had been neatly written, placed inside a sealed envelope and then into a plastic Ziploc bag to protect it from what he would have known to have been an ensuing mess. I noted he had scribbled additional notes on the back of the sealed envelope. They must have been afterthoughts that he had presumably written while he stood there waiting for a sizeable truck to appear. One of the notes on the rear was an apology to the truck driver, as he was aware and saddened by the horrific effect that the collision of this nature would have on him. Among other things was a second apology, this one to the staff at a well-known public work location, where I was to later learn that he had performed a volunteering role for a number of years. And there was only one page inside the sealed envelope, which predominantly gave detailed instructions to his wife, named Anne, in respect to financial matters, and yet curiously, finished the letter with one sentence of an unexplained apology. The evilness hidden behind this collision would only come to light when I delivered the dreaded death message to
to his elderly and frail wife, Anne. I knocked on the door and was fearful that Anne was possibly old and frail. Every death message is different, and I had prepared myself on the way there for the best way to deliver such horrible and life-changing news. A gentle introduction was always best before respectfully requesting to come inside. Normally, your tone of voice forewarns the person at the door that everything is not right, and they almost immediately ask you what is wrong. However, when Anne answered the door, she quickly took in the uniform and she spoke before I had the chance to. Is this about Ted, she asked. Now I was quickly and unexpectedly on the back foot. Ah, uh, yes, I'm sorry it is, I replied. Then before I could even begin to say what I had planned to, she just casually added, If you're here, it must be because he's dead. So come on in and I'll put the kettle on. Those spidey hairs of mine on the back of my neck raised up, but not in the way I was used to. No sooner had we sat at the kitchen table and the kettle began to boil, I thought it best to say nothing in that moment, and as a consequence, the story poured out. Even without mentioning the circumstances of Ted's death, Anne went on in detail, saying she knew Ted would take his own life, and that our appearance at the door was no surprise to her. She began to deconstruct how Ted came to be in such a position that he felt taking his life would be the only answer. But it was how she told the story, in such a strangely calm, uncaring, and unnervingly weird sort of way that bothered me the most. Now I'm going to stop at this point, and I need to indicate that what I discuss from here and through the bulk of the rest of this episode makes reference to crimes against children. Take comfort I have chosen not to go into any of the details or any specifics of any of these crimes. Some three weeks prior to his death, Ted and Anne had had their children and their grandchildren at their home to celebrate an early Christmas. In the most briefest of terms, it was at that party that Ted tampered with both of his two young grandchildren. It was then in the weeks that followed, the children were uncharacteristically restless at home. They regularly argued with their parents and were unable to sleep. When the occurrence of what had happened that day at their grandfather's home finally surfaced, Ted's son, Brian, the father of the children, fronted Ted and demanded answers. So many questions were asked. Had he and his brother also been tampered with? Had Ted done it to other family members? How long had this been going on? Did Mum know? Had he sought help? They parted that day on the condition he would initially contact his doctor to seek help and he also agreed that he would self-report the incident to police. But it was only the next day Ted stepped in front of that truck and the size and breadth of his evilness came to light. Ted's evil career was first discovered some 54 years ago when he was caught pleasing himself as he watched a very young female undress through the window of a neighbour's house. This was late into the night, two days before his pending marriage to Anne. He was later found in possession of child pornographic magazines. He was regularly caught masturbating outside, sometimes in public places. Locally, he was thought of as a generous and caring local identity as he would take young individuals under his wing, supposedly teaching them carpentry in his private garage. 
For many, many years, he worked in a public building where schools conducted daily excursions, and it was his role to take young children into the small, dark rooms as part of a history lesson. Then not only did Ted interfere with his own grandchildren and detailed an incident where it was also alleged he did it while coaching a junior football team, and then again in the change rooms at the local swimming pool. After hearing the prolonged history of Ted's evil offending, I asked her how she knew. Is this why she expected Ted's death? Had he told her of his 50 plus years of offending? Her response was that she'd always known. She was the one who had caught him on nearly every single occasion and it was her that covered it up by choosing to say nothing to no one, even when it came to the incident with their grandchildren. I couldn't help thinking and I felt like saying that both of you should have crossed the road that day together. Evil lurks everywhere. For obvious reasons, its activities are hidden and I could never work in a section of the police force that involves investigating sexual related crimes. Deep down, I knew there was no possible way I could deal with these type of offenders in a true and just way, particularly if it involved the interference of children. However, it wasn't uncommon for the local sexual crime investigators to call on me to assist with the arrest of an offender that they'd been investigating. I knew the vast bulk of the investigators as they did I, and I knew that they were comfortable and aware of my capabilities and experience. But they also knew that any request for my assistance would be conditional. At no time was I to be informed of the intricacies of their investigation. All I needed to know was who we were specifically looking for, what potential risk they were, and how and in what form they wanted this individual arrested. I was always happy to oblige. Just don't tell me any of the specifics of their evil ways. I appreciated the fact that they honoured this and they always respected and complied with my condition, except on one particular occasion. A public figure, a well-known, very well-known public figure, was the subject of this investigation and he was well-connected. Not only well-connected, but well-armed and definitely would not want to be caught, particularly as he performed the specifics of his act, which the investigators were determined to catch him doing. For obvious reasons, a full pre-arrest briefing was essential. It was an absolute requirement for all of us participating in that arrest to sit in on the briefing. And what I heard at that meeting was the most incredibly disgusting historic series of events and the details of which I will never repeat. Over many years, I have heard, witnessed, and seen some terrible, horrific crimes. But what I was told in that briefing, what this very public figure was doing to his two young stepchildren was so disgusting and perverted, it makes me ill to this day. While a couple of my very close friends may have previously heard this story over the years, very few, if any, know of the specifics, as I cannot bring myself to talk about it. The door was smashed open with more force than I'd felt I'd ever used, and the eight of us poured into the entrance of the house. The raid had been perfectly timed to coincide with his predicted behaviour, and he was quickly found in his den of iniquity with the children as expected. He and the two young children were still wearing the superhero costumes that he forced them to wear 
as he enacted his rituals. I'm not ashamed to say my initial takedown and an arrest of him earned me one of the very few complaints I received throughout my career, and I wear that arrest and ensuing investigation as a badge of honour. The investigators gathered the large amount of varied and sick evidence, multiple bags and tubs of child pornographic material, photos, computers, cameras, videos, all located behind a false wall, were tagged and taken away while I monitored and guarded him in the kitchen. I couldn't take my eyes from him as he sat in his outfit in the chair, his head despondently in his hands as he knew he was fucked. But I just couldn't compute it. I couldn't reason or identify with it in any way and I honestly struggled with what I had just witnessed. I found myself twisting my hand on the butt of my firearm to obtain a better grip. Even though I was mentally elsewhere, I was aware my hand was tightly gripping the firearm as it had been a deliberate and conscious action to place it there. I was giving serious, deadly serious thought about drawing it out. He lifted his head and he looked at me. What the fuck are you looking at, he said, knowing that I'd been continually staring at him. It took every single and absolute fibre in my body not to walk over to him and do what I felt at that point in time needed to be done. But I stood my ground. What am I looking at, I replied. A fucking oxygen thief, you piece of shit. Regardless of his position in society, he got slotted for 18 years, and that wasn't anywhere near even long enough. The only sense of satisfaction I took from his short term of imprisonment was the knowledge that rock spiders, as child offenders are referred to in prison, are considered the lowest of prisoners. It would be a very difficult and long-suffering attempt at self-preservation and survival. I would like to say that this was a very difficult episode for me to record, as it is a very contentious subject matter, and nobody likes to hear about it or discuss it, but... I feel it needs to be. Clearly I have a strong opinion about those who I refer to as evil people, and should I lose listeners because of this, so be it. Send me as much vitriol as you like on my Instagram account, should you feel the need to, but I will not make any apologies for expressing my dislike of these criminals, nor my support for the lengthy incarceration that I would like to see them receive. I would also like to applaud and commend the members of police that choose to investigate these evil offenders with the express intent of removing them from our society. And when you next think or question yourself or others about what you most hate in your job or what is tough in life, spare a thought for those investigators and at least mentally thank them for their efforts. I know I do. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to be informed when a new episode is posted, please follow and support me on my Instagram page, truecrime.ericwelsh. Thank you.